But first, I want to take a moment, or a few moments, to remark upon this uncelebrated day, the 2nd of July. This is a day on which, some 245 years ago, our young nation, which wasn't technically a nation, declared her independence from her colonial mother, Great Britain. No, no, I didn't misspeak. It is the 2nd of July, not the 4th, on which we should focus our attention this holiday weekend, to which we should all direct our patriotic exuberance, raise our hamburgers and hot dogs and drink our beers. And yet, an appreciation of the importance of the 2nd of July, 1776, is wanting. Remember, prior to the Second Continental Congress's meeting in Philadelphia that summer, America's War of Independence had been going on for a little over a year. The first battle, that of Lexington and Concord, broke out on the 19th of April of 1775. In the succeeding 14 months, battles were waged across the entire continent, from Quebec to Boston to the Carolinas, all the way down to the Bahamas, if you can believe it. You might be surprised to know that, up till the summer of 1776, the notion of complete independence or a radical separation from the English crown wasn't one behind which there was unanimous support. Quite the contrary. Early in the conflict, many colonists were mm, disquieted by the prospect of severing their ancient connection to England, the most powerful empire since the Roman Empire, toward which they still felt a strong affection. Indeed, an almost filial warmth. If a simple poll could have been conducted at that time, like the daily online surveys to which we are always urged to respond, it might have shown the following. A third of the colonists in support of independence, a third opposed, and a third scrolling TikTok, uninterested in and indifferent to the whole thing. Among the state delegates to the Continental Congress, to which one of my favorite cities, Philadelphia, was home, there was a great deal of ambivalence. Many held to the not unreasonable hope that reconciliation with England was not only possible, but preferable. They merely wanted the restoration of their proper rights as British subjects, rights of which, be it through the Stamp Act, the Quartering Act, the Quebec Act, the Intolerable Acts, etc., they felt themselves unjustly to have been deprived. As is the American way, debate between the two sides was impassioned and vigorous. It wasn't only between royalists and republicans, but between revolutionaries and reconciliationists. 
In hindsight, we all look back and like to imagine ourselves staunchly on the side of the revolutionaries, but I'm not so sure that would be the case. Remaining with the crown had many advantages, financial, social, and professional, by which, I think, a great number of us would be more than a little enticed. And yet, as we know, the radicals, the separatists, the revolutionaries prevailed. Richard Henry Lee, in June of 1776, wrote his eponymous Lee Resolution. Unadorned by the jewels of Thomas Jefferson's dazzling eloquence, Lee's resolution was a straightforward document that declared, in no uncertain terms, the Thirteen Colonies' Independence. Though not a legally effective document, it was a good start, and it aroused in the delegates an urgency to put down something forceful, if not historical, in writing. Impressed by the spirit and directness of Lee's resolution, though hesitant to adopt it in full, the Congress decided to appoint a committee of five, a group of men among whom we count some of the greatest names of our founding era, to explore the idea more thoroughly and, if suitable, produce a draft declaration of its own. Led by the prodigiously talented, if somewhat morally flawed, Thomas Jefferson, a young, aristocratic Virginian of only 33 years, the committee included an aged but brilliant Benjamin Franklin, the trenchant and fearless John Adams, Connecticut's Roger Sherman and New York's Richard Livingston. Imagine any one of our modern-day committees, like the celebrated Select Committee to which the investigation of the events surrounding January 6th have been assigned, being populated with so many men of merit and undisputed genius. What a country it would be. Jefferson, the uncontested leader of the five, immediately got to work drafting what would eventually come to be known as the Declaration of Independence. Borrowing from philosophers ancient and modern, ranging from Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Hobbes, Grotius to Montesquieu, while also drawing some inspiration from his fellow Virginian, Richard Henry Lee, Jefferson finished our nation's great charter of freedom in just over two weeks. I've known people who take longer to compose a single Facebook post or Instagram reel. On the 28th of June, Jefferson's draft was sent to the Congress, by whom it was closely reviewed and amended as the delegates deemed fit. Jefferson, assured of his own work's immaculacy, bristled at the thought that it might suffer the disgrace of a collective editing. The world's not yet known a genius who wasn't commensurately vain. Finally, on the 2nd of July, 1776, the Continental Congress, convinced by the strength of Jefferson's arguments, intoxicated by the fumes of his eloquent, graceful pen, and, above all, lifted by the giddy spirit of a just, providential, and momentous revolution, a vote was held. The delegates, 
to their everlasting merit and fame, voted to be free, for which we, their posterity, wholeheartedly thank them this weekend, and every weekend, and every day, and every hour, we breathe this air of liberty. Over the course of the next few days, the Declaration underwent further changes, both in style and in substance, by which Jefferson, like any author fiercely partial to his original work, was none too pleased. It was important, however, for him to condescend to the wishes of others. Such a willingness to compromise is demonstrative of a democratic and republican soul. Delegates from the South, for example, urged the removal of his denunciatory tone as it pertained to slavery, an institution by which they still envisioned many more years of profit. Sadly, their desire was gratified, and the following passage was omitted. Quote, he, King George, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people, the Africans, who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither on the Middle Passage. This piratical warfare, this opprobium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce. And that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them and murdering the people upon whom he has obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with the crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. It's a complicated passage with which we should spend some time, and perhaps in a future episode we will. But for now, with the edits complete, the Declaration was adopted in its final form on the 4th of July, 1776. At that point, only one man signed it, John Hancock president of the Continental Congress. It wasn't until the 2nd of August, 1776, that his big, elegant, unforgettable signature was joined by 56 others. I conclude my celebration of July 2nd by quoting John Adams, a founder of whom I'm very fond. He said, in a letter to his distinguished wife, Abigail Adams. Quote, the second day of July, 1776, 
will be the most memorable epica in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Today, the 2nd of July, 2022, we commemorate it as Adams envisioned. Let us look to the heavens and set off our fireworks and kneel to the ground and thank God Almighty for these blessings of liberty that we enjoy today. And with that, I will now read to you the Declaration of Independence, its final, polished, edited form, uh, agreed to by the Continental Congress, the Second Continental Congress, on the 4th of July, that glorious year of 1776. It is a document that still sets my heart aflutter. It inspires in me the faith and the hope of our fathers, our founders. The Unanimous Declaration of the Thirteen United States of America When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shewn that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards to their future security. 
Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records, for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising conditions of new appropriations of land. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices, and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices, and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us, in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without 
our consent. For depriving us, in many cases, of the benefits of trial by jury. For transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province. Establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. For taking away our charters abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislatures, and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this very time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt in our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, 
free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. There it is, in full, our Declaration of Independence, our glorious, euphonious Charter of Freedom, to which still, 245 years later, nearly a quarter of a millennium, every American heart still leaps. Let us not, in this age of criticism, deconstruction, and plenary self-hate, become insensitive to this founding spirit. Let us not so easily dismiss the gifts of which we are the grateful inheritors. Let us celebrate our liberty. Let us extol our founders and their vision of freedom. Let us love our neighbors and cherish our friends. Let us sympathize with our opponents and think well of our enemies. Let us be countrymen once again. And above all, let us reflect on these words with which Mr. Jefferson, the Committee of Five, and the Second Continental Congress leaves us. and with which, through them, I now leave you. Farewell from Finneran's Wake, and happy 4th of July.